more heresy is preached in application than in Bible exegesis. Those are the words of the late Dr. Hayden Robinson, who was the former Harold J. Ockengaw Distinguished Professor of Preaching, Senior Director of the Doctor of Ministry Program, and former President at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Again, he said, more heresy is preached in application than in Bible exegesis. What did Dr. Robinson mean by that? That's a great question, and today we're going to answer it. Welcome to A Time to Speak. My name is Brian Powell, and I am delighted that you're joining me today for this episode. It's true. From the pulpit to the pew, the American church is suffering from the condition of biblical illiteracy. God's word has been replaced with entertainment, political rhetoric, cultural trends, and the likes. And in turn, people are overdosing, if you will, on the theological nonsense that's coming out of many of our pulpits. Friends, that's not an opinion. It's a statistical fact. Did you know that meditating on Scripture and memorizing parts of the Bible has been part of the Christian tradition from the very beginning? As a professing believer, you are part of a movement where the Bible has been foundational to our faith and practice from the onset. When I got saved, the very first thing my pastor had me do was start memorizing Scripture. He used Chick Shaver's basic Bible studies, and for those of you that are part of the Church of the Nazarene, then you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. I say that to say in times past, discipleship has been centered in biblical truth, not human reasoning, not philosophy, but biblical truth. However, today, meditating on Scripture and the memorization of God's Word, it seems to be a lost discipline. Today, people rely on their pastors and their Sunday school teachers and their discipleship group leaders and theologians, etc., to interpret the Bible for them. And, And I believe, while that's not a bad thing, it has resulted in a mass sickness, spiritually speaking, in the life of the church. And consequently, we have an entire generation who lacks basic biblical understanding. And it's an epidemic. It's at an all-time high. Misapplication has become mainstream. People are spiritually anemic. They're starving for truth. And in this state, in this spiritual state, if you will, they're susceptible to anything. Because when your soul is hungry, you see, the the soul is the core of who we are. And when your soul is hungry or starving, just like with physical hunger, you're open to anything that sounds good. Now, many people cite that the reason they don't study the Bible is because they simply can't comprehend it. And this lack of biblical understanding is an ever-growing phenomenon. I believe this begs the question, 
How do we make sense of the Bible? Uh, Is it purely a matter of reading it and doing what it says, or is it more complicated than that? Is the Bible a simple book that can be plainly understood without the need for interpretation, or does it require some effort in discovering the deeper truths? Well, to some degree, I'd say that it's all of the above. So before we dig into this matter, I'd like to say to encourage you, if you're making an effort to read the Bible, to study God's Word, then, then praise the Lord, because God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that means if you're earnestly trying to read and understand God's Word, that He's going to help you make sense of things. I believe that. His Word doesn't return void. So don't lose that hunger for spiritual truth. Theologically speaking, the church has always viewed Scripture as special revelation from God. If you were to take Theology 101 in Bible college or seminary, you'd discover that there are two types of revelation. In other words, speaking to the ways in which God reveals himself to us. One is general revelation. God has revealed himself through nature, through the creation of the world, through the creation of human beings, through our conscience, through all sorts of things. Uh, Number two is special revelation. So we have general revelation and we have special revelation. Special revelation has two primary categories, and that is the Holy Spirit. God reveals himself to us through his Spirit. And two, Holy Scripture. And those two never contradict one another. So special revelation means that God has revealed himself in a unique way through these sources. Now, keep in mind, as you study God's Word, the goal isn't to discover new truth. You're not trying to discover new truth. God's truth has already been revealed. Thus, what we're looking for is deeper understanding. Not new understanding, deeper understanding. In the last few episodes, we've dealt with the authority of Scripture and the importance of adhering to a biblical worldview. If you haven't had a chance to listen to those, I'd invite you to go back and listen. Today, however, I'd like to talk to you about the critical work of interpreting the Bible. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writes, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth rightly dividing the word of God. Paul is communicating here in this passage to his young protege, Timothy, the utter importance of properly understanding and applying God's word, which is the work of biblical interpretation. Right now, more than any other time in modern history, now I'm not going to say ever because the church has endured great heresy in times past. The church has endured dark days. And as long as we're in this world, the church will continue to endure those times. Nonetheless, more than ever in our lifetime and in our culture here in the West, pastors and theologians and Christian leaders from various traditions are guilty of forcing the Bible to say and mean things that it has never said and never meant. And as a result, unbiblical and unorthodox views are being imposed on Christianity throughout our culture, and it's being embraced by churches and Christians everywhere. 
And so as the spirit of the age wreaks havoc on an entire generation, large portions of the church is postured on the sidelines, arguing over the authority of Scripture, something that's been settled from the very beginning of our faith. Friends, when we come into the Christian faith, when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we come to Christ and commit our lives to following Him, we're not coming into something that's still being established. We're not coming into something that still needs foundational work. No, we're, we're coming into something, we're becoming part of something that has long been established. You see, Jesus himself established the church, and he did so on the teaching of Scripture. Now, if we forget that, we're bound to get caught up in misinterpretation, which is of no benefit to any of us. Don't you think if there had been a problem with the Old Testament, Jesus would have corrected it himself while he was here? Yet he didn't. He used it in his own ministry. He preached from it. The reason more Christians aren't experiencing victory over sin, aren't experiencing freedom in their walk with the Lord is because they're listening to the wrong voices. They're building their faith on the wrong things. Now, I must remind you that what we're experiencing here is high-level spiritual warfare. It's a battle for the minds and souls of people. That's what it's always been about. You see, the enemy's end game is to control the narrative in your head. That's why Paul tells us to take on the mind of Christ. But again, the enemy's end game is to control how you think. And that's why the battle always comes in the form of ideas, thoughts, cultural influences, voices that are telling us how to think and how to order our lives. Make no mistake, the enemy's quest for your soul always starts in the mind. And once he gains solid footing in your head, he goes to work on your soul. And guess what? That plays out in all kinds of ways in people's lives. Because ultimately, as we think in our heart, so are we, right? Whatever the truth is that becomes foundational is going to affect not only our soul, but even our physical well-being. Do you remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4? He had just been baptized, and then he went into the wilderness. What happened? Satan, he didn't attack Jesus physically. No, he whispered in his ear. You see, that's what the enemy does. If you are the Son of God, well, at Jesus' baptism, the Father had just said, this is my Son who I am well pleased And so the enemy comes whispering contrary to God, well, if you are the son of God, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. And and that's the same way the enemy attacks us today. Demonic forces are running wild in our culture. They have dominion. So don't fool yourself by thinking you're immune to the whispers of the enemy. You see, when people fall away from the faith, it never happens instantaneously. It's gradual. The enemy always starts by putting thoughts and ideas in your head that are contrary to God's word, to God's truth as he's revealed it. And and thus the battle that we find ourselves in is for the mind. So while reading the Bible is essential, making sense of what we're reading is even more important. 
And today I want to focus primarily on three terms that we need to understand in doing the work of interpretation, in the work of interpreting Scripture. Number one is the word exegesis. Now, for those of you familiar with biblical studies, you're familiar with that word. For those of you that aren't, don't let that word scare you. The second word is eisegesis. Those two words, exegesis, is spelled E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. Eisegesis is E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. And then the third word is hermeneutics, which is more of an umbrella term. Now, those words may sound complicated, but I assure you that they're not hard to understand. The terms exegesis and eisegesis refer to how one reads the Bible, how one interprets the Bible. Exegesis stems from the Greek word meaning to explain or to lead out of. The word simply means to take away from, or even more simply, to interpret. Exegesis is the careful, systematic study of the Bible to discover the original intended meaning. It's the work of understanding the there and then. That's a good way to remember it. Exegesis is attempting to understand the there and then, what it meant to the original audience, what the author was trying to communicate to the original audience. Eisegesis comes from the Greek word meaning to introduce or to lead into. Eisegesis is the practice of reading into the Bible or a specific biblical text, something that isn't there in order to conform it to a preconceived idea or set of beliefs. So in a nutshell, exegesis is something you want to learn how to do, and eisegesis is something you want to avoid doing. Now, think about it like this. Exegesis listens to the text. Eisegesis speaks to the text. Exegesis derives its meaning from the original historic context of any given biblical passage. On the other hand, eisegesis, again, it speaks to the text. It's not concerned with the historical context. Exegesis asks, how can I get out of the way and let the text speak for itself? Eisegesis asks, how can I make the text say what I need it to say? Exegesis allows the Bible to challenge one's own ideas and thoughts and preconceived notions. Eisegesis, on the other hand, tries to conform the text to what someone's already thinking. So, so those are the differences. Hermeneutics, briefly, is an umbrella term that refers to the science and the art of biblical interpretation. It comes from the Greek word meaning to translate. It's the process of application where the original text becomes culturally relevant for today's reader. It's building a bridge. And before we build a bridge into our modern context, we have to start with the original audience. And so before you can get to the hermeneutical questions, you have to answer the exegetical questions. When I say it's a science and an art, when I say it's a science, I mean it's going to involve studying or familiarizing yourself possibly with the original languages to some degree, to the original culture. It's going to involve familiarizing yourself with various literary genres and styles of writing. It's going to 
use supplemental materials such as commentaries and lexicons and Bible dictionaries, etc. When I say it's an art, I'm talking about the process of application. I mean, it's that's that's the building the bridge that connects today's listener to the heart of God as revealed in a given text. It's going to include our personalities. It's going to include uh, maybe stories that relate to what was being communicated then in a more modern context. So hermeneutics ultimately is the work of finding the significance in the here and now. And that's important because God's word is eternal, meaning what? That it transcends time. So exegesis is the there and then. And hermeneutics is the here and now. To illustrate eisegesis, that's what we're supposed to avoid doing, remember. Uh, I'd like us to think about a story for a moment that we're probably all familiar with, David and Goliath. Uh, Now, let's say you, the reader, the preacher, the teacher, the student, as you interpret the story, Let's say you identify yourself in the story as David, and thus Goliath would represent the hard times, the trials, the tribulation, the enemy coming up against our life. Now, with that understanding, one might translate this passage to mean that although life is hard sometimes, although life is overwhelming, although there's a lot of endurance, although the enemy's coming against us, that God wants us to know that we can overcome life's difficulties with our spiritual slingshot, you know, through your own strength, through the resources that you have, through your own willpower. Now, some of you may be thinking, what's wrong with that interpretation? Well, let me ask, when you interpret it that way, who becomes the Savior? You do, right? You see, friends, the very first filter that we need in doing the work of exegesis, doing the work of biblical interpretation, is to remember that it's all about God. It's all centered in Jesus. With biblical narratives, God is always the central focus. Now, again, I'm certainly not saying that anyone's going to lose their faith if they misinterpret a passage along the way. We've all been guilty of it at some point or another. However, faithfulness to the text is our goal. As the old adage goes, a text out of context becomes a pretext. In other words, the text becomes whatever you need it to be when you deconstruct the Bible to be more about you and less about God. And the trouble with interpreting Scripture this way is that we get to choose the subject matter rather than allowing the text to be the focus. And if one's not careful, this approach might cause us to believe that our faith is more about our own willpower and well-being than it is God's character and God's truth and God's eternal promises. You see, that's where our faith is grounded in who God is not in who we are. Another commonly misinterpreted and misapplied text is Jeremiah 29, 11. You're all familiar with that, I'm sure. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Where do you usually hear that verse used? 
we typically see that verse used at on birthday cards at weddings or graduations. And I get it. I get it. It makes sense that people celebrating a milestone or a promotion in their life, they want to hear that the Lord has plans to prosper them even more, right? I understand that we all want to hear about the Lord's plans to prosper us. Now, proper exegesis, however, would teach us that the prophet Jeremiah wrote this message in Jerusalem, which had been left in ruins. Babylon had come in under King Nebuchadnezzar and ransacked God's people. And he took all the young, healthy men and all the beautiful young women back to Babylon with him. He wanted to make them good Babylonians. And he left the rest there to die in the ruins. And so Jeremiah was in that letter addressing the surviving elders among the exiles, the priests, the prophets, and the others that had been carried off into Babylonian captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. So right away, in context, we learned that this text has nothing to do with celebrating a milestone. It has nothing to do with weddings and birthday parties. Instead, the author is writing to people who had been taken out of their homeland to a foreign place against their will. Now, after discovering the original writer's intention, Another question we would probably need to ask is, what did this mean to the original readers, to the people in exile? Well, to answer that question, we only need to read the previous verse. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So the original readers knew that deliverance meant that after a specific amount of time, God would deliver them from Babylonian captivity. Thus, what might be a better application for that verse? Maybe we should think about it this way. We need to learn to rely on God and his promises in difficult and confusing times. That would be better a better hermeneutic for the passage, much like the times we're living in today. So in less than a few minutes, we've gone from thinking that Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, means that God promises us better jobs or a prosperous future to realizing that it actually refers to God's faithfulness to his people in challenging and difficult times. Now, let's talk about hermeneutics specifically for a few moments. This word refers to the application of a biblical text. Again, the here and now. The most common and reliable hermeneutical method is called the literal interpretation of the text. This approach seeks out the plain meaning of a biblical text. It does not imply that every passage should be interpreted literally, but rather that the plain meaning should be accepted as divine truth. For instance, when Jesus calls his followers the light of the world and the salt of the earth, I mean, we don't interpret that to mean literally that we should, you know, carry around bright flashlights and salt shakers, right? Instead, we understand that Jesus was teaching that as we follow him, his light shines through our lives and his truth brings seasoning to the world in which we live. So he was speaking allegorically. Another example is when Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him in John six fifty six. Friends, he's not calling for cannibalism. Certainly we know that. 
Instead, he's using a figure of speech, which is revealed in the greater context. When he says, your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Uh, Another mode of interpretation or method is called the moral interpretation. And this approach seeks to draw out uh, ethical lessons from a biblical text. For example, when Leviticus forbids eating certain animals, the moral approach might teach that it's not the flesh of the animals that God's concerned about, but the vices associated with the animals that were of concern to God. Then you have the allegorical approach or the allegorical interpretation. Now, this approach views biblical passages as having a secondary level of meaning. It often views people and places and events in the Old Testament as foreshadowing people and events in the New Testament, usually Jesus. And we know that many Old Testament characters foreshadowed Jesus. Another example would be that Egypt is a foreshadowing of the world, or Babylon is a foreshadowing of the world, whereas Israel is revelation of the church. And so we understand that. And then we have the anagogical or the mystical approach to interpretation. Now, this method seeks to explain biblical events and current issues as relating to our future existence in the heavenly realm. For example, Jordan might be interpreted as the river of death, and by crossing it, one enters the heavenly realm of Canaan. Again, the most reliable method of biblical interpretation, the one used by theologians and biblical scholars for centuries, is the literal interpretation of the text. For centuries, scholars have taught us to start with the plain reading of the text. In fact, if we start with the literal approach, we'll likely draw out the other methods through proper hermeneutics. With that said, for the next few minutes, I'd like to illustrate the work of proper biblical hermeneutics. And I wouldn't typically read a passage this long. However, I feel it helps demonstrate the importance of properly interpreting the Bible in light of the day and age that we live. I'm going to read Romans 1, verses 16 through 32, and then we're going to exegete it, and we're going to use hermeneutical approaches to understand what it might mean for us today. You ready? Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. There's general revelation. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24. 
Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with their passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. At first reading, what do we identify in this text? Well, for one, Paul is obviously speaking to a morally degenerate society. He's speaking to the church in Rome. He's speaking of the society and the culture in which the church finds itself. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It is apparent, friends, that Paul is addressing people living in a society that openly denies the Creator. And so the obvious hermeneutical question quickly becomes, does that sound familiar? Paul goes on to say that when people refuse the light that God's revealed, they end up worshiping the things they've created, the things they've made, idols. They become futile in their thinking. That means fruitless or useless. Remember, the enemy attacks the mind. He always starts the battle in the mind. How we think matters. And in turn, the result of that is they become consumed with the passions of the flesh. So Paul was writing to a morally and intellectually, again, how we think, a morally and intellectually bankrupt society. That's why verse 24 says, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart. In other words, God turned them over to the things they had accepted in his place. Paul writes, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Instead of virtue, they embraced immorality and wickedness. Again, it started in their thinking and resulted in the dishonoring of their bodies. So again, the enemy gets a foothold in the mind, and it plays out in every area of our lives in the long run. Now, I want you to note something here in Romans chapter 1, that there are three exchanges in this text. First, they exchange the glory of God for man-made images and creeping things. Second, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And finally, they exchange the natural function of human sexuality for that which is contrary to God. Hermeneutics demands that we address the relationship between cultural 
depravity, societal immorality, and human sexuality. Now, I realize before I get into this that in our time, this is a very unpopular subject. This is a complicated topic. I want to say that. I understand it's very uncomfortable for some. However, if the Bible is authoritative, and if the Bible deals with a particular subject in a particular way, then friends, as Christians, we're not allowed to gloss over that. We're not allowed to change what it says. We're not allowed to eisegete it. We got to avoid that. And so I want you to understand, I approach this with compassion for so many people that are dealing with these issues. Friends, they've been blinded by the ideas of the day. However, I also must approach this text with conviction, with honesty. So in Romans 1, Paul is describing the consequences of a society, of a culture that refuses not only to worship God, but to even acknowledge him. I mean, that would be the plain, literal reading of the text. Today, many theologians are teaching that Paul was addressing a taboo issue in that day involving adult men seeking to engage in homosexual acts with adolescent boys or younger men. These same theologians and church leaders might teach that the church and the Bible have got it wrong on this issue as it pertains to today's culture. In fact, I've had a lot of pastors in general conversation say this to me, that they think the church and even the Bible, Paul, he got it wrong on this issue. And friends, this is an excellent example of modern-day eisegesis. They've exchanged the truth for a lie. They've conformed texts like this and others to their preconceived ideas, to cultural trends. Now, again, we would use commentaries. We would use other historical works for clarity to bring more light into a biblical passage, especially as it pertains to the culture and the original audience. Now, in doing so, if we were to do that, what we would discover is that everything Paul is saying in Romans 1 had already been said by historians and scholars of his day. I mean, it is well documented that Roman society in Paul's time was full of unnatural vice. In that day, the culture had given in to the lust of their flesh to such a degree that they had normalized their perversions. I mean, it's general knowledge that numerous Roman emperors and high-ranking officials in that day were engaged in all kinds of immoral sexual behavior. And in that sense, what Paul is writing here is actually very brave. I mean, he is speaking against things that the mainstream culture of his day had widely accepted, that they were trying to normalize, including the Roman government. I mean, that's why they jailed Paul everywhere he went. That's why they stoned him. That's why they wanted to kill him, because he was speaking, he was going against the grain. Now, in essence, Paul is saying here that all unnatural relationships are contrary to natural law. Natural law, meaning that which God has revealed from the beginning for the development and the well-being, not only of the individual believer, but of society as a whole. Now, let's build a bridge. Romans 1 describes a culture 
that refused God essentially on every level. They refused to worship God. They refused to even acknowledge God. And in this passage, the link is clear between idolatry and moral degeneration. Romans 1 teaches that God's judgment included giving them up, or you might say handing them over to their depraved nature. He gave, what did he give them up to? To disordered lives. God turned them over to the desires of their flesh. In other words, he gave them what they wanted. The circumstances described in Romans 1, friends, are indicative of idol worship. Now, let's not fool ourselves in speaking of idols. All of us have been involved in idol worship in some form or another along the lines. Now, that doesn't mean that we have shrines set up in our homes and we burn incense and candles and bow down to other gods. Nonetheless, we all know what it's like to worship other things to put something else before God. In fact, those things creep up in our lives often without us even realizing it. It's this notion that, hey, I'm the ruler of my own destiny. I decide what I do with my life. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to make decisions for me. I'll live life however I want to live it. And that mindset, that autonomous, self-independent, I'll do what I want mindset, that qualifies as idolatry. Friends, we all know people worship all sorts of things. Sex, money, health, careers, pleasure, academics, there's no end to it. Whatever your vice, you can rest assured there's an idol for you. Make no mistake, we're all capable of producing idols. And at some point or another, we've all been guilty. And our idolatry reveals the level of our immorality. I want you to follow me here because it's imperative that we understand this. Why is our culture in the mess it's in in the West? Why is America in the moral trouble that it is in today? Well, because we don't acknowledge God. We used to, as a culture, acknowledge God. God had the church, God's way, God's word. It had a much more prominent place in our society in times past. But we don't even acknowledge him anymore, much less worship him. I mean, people are too busy playing with their idols to acknowledge God. Paul says they exchange the glory of God for idols and creeping things. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged natural sexual relationships for what is unnatural. Now, in Romans 1, there's no doubt that Paul is deliberately echoing Genesis 1, where we read, so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created what? Male and female. What is that? That's natural law. That's the way the world has been ordered by God, created by God. That is the way of God. So when Paul uses the word natural versus unnatural, he's describing the world as God created it, as God set it into motion. And so proper exegesis doesn't give us the convenience of deciding what natural means. Do you understand it's already been decided? That's why exegesis is so important. Natural in this text refers to how God created the world, how he ordered the world from the beginning, period. Again, Paul's not saying something unique here. In that day in Rome, all sorts of sexual immorality and sexual practices was considered contrary to nature. So Paul is referring here to natural order. 
as revealed by God from the beginning. He's addressing society's refusal to recognize the moral law of God as authoritative in governing society as a whole. What Paul depicts in Romans 1 is outright rebellion against God. In other words, they abandoned basic moral truth and revelation, and then they became what? Consumed with passion for one another. That means they couldn't get it off their mind. That means that they were constantly engaging these things that were contrary to what God had revealed as being right. The Bible is clear on this matter, friends. Any sexual activity outside of one man and one woman within the confines of marriage is unnatural. Thus, it is a violation of God's created order. And it's certainly not the greatest sin in the universe, but it does demonstrate a society's collective defiance toward God. You see, when a culture reaches this level of corporate depravity, where one's God-given gender can be deconstructed and reconstructed according to how a person feels on the inside or whatever ethical set of norms they've decided to embrace, then, friends, that society is gone. It's over. Now, to find further application, let's contrast the text with our day. By and large, mainstream culture in our day regards sexual pleasure that's consensual, as fundamentally healthy, as natural. Again, they're redefining natural. No moral distinctions today need to be made among the various types of erotic behavior someone engages. I mean, sexual acts are now just a matter of personal preference. The human wisdom of our day teaches us that this newfound form of sexual freedom is liberating. Although statistics tell a very different story, with anxiety and depression and loneliness and isolation and suicide impacting more people than ever, especially young people who have been brainwashed by these ideologies. And while the God-given structure for a society crumbles right here in our midst, what's happening? Well, you've got the spirit of the age that standing among the ruins, mocking the critics, cheering on the depravity, cheering on the immorality. Verse 32, what does it say? They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is exactly where we're at today. Now, this passage isn't just teaching a code of sexual ethics, nor is it a warning of God's coming judgment against those who are guilty of sexual perversion. Instead, friends, it's an indication of the spiritual state of a society that turns its back on God. In the moral vision of the New Testament, author Richard Hayes writes, Paul is offering in Romans 1 a diagnosis of the disordered human condition. In other words, what Paul is teaching here is that the widespread sexual immorality is evidence in a society that human beings are in outright rebellion against their creator. You see, the sin Paul is addressing in this passage is not the immoral acts themselves. The sin he's addressing is their refusal to acknowledge God. Thus, God's wrath takes the form of letting their idolatry run its course. In other words, the society's unrestrained sexual perversion 
is not what provokes the wrath of God. Rather, it is the wrath of God. It's God letting them go. It's a consequence of God's decision to give them up, to let rebellious creatures follow their own futile, fruitless thinking. As it was in Paul's day, so it is in ours. We find clear evidence of the wrath of God in our society. The penalty, what is it? It's our collective society's unsatisfied lust. It's the collective fixation and excessive indulgence in sensual desires. Friends, we're living in that culture today. We exist in a society that sympathizes with depravity. It has normalized immorality. The spirit of our age has poisoned the minds of the supporters against anyone who tries to say anything any different. I mean, go and try to say, this is not right, and see what happens. They'll penalize you. They'll ostracize you. They'll demonize you. Anybody that tries to say, hey, this is not the right way. Friends, if you ever wondered what it was like to live in Rome in Paul's day, you need look no further than America today. And I realize that many pastors and theologians will hear this sort of thing and say, ah, it isn't really that bad. Friends, these are the deniers. These are the supporters. Yes, it is that bad. And the saddest part is professing Christians everywhere are unable to see it. I think it's also important to note that Romans 1, Paul is not describing the depravity of an individual. This passage doesn't deal with it on that level, friends. He's talking about the entire culture. He's talking about the consequences of a society, a nation, a group of people that has normalized idolatry and sexual depravity. And if you don't believe sexual perversion has been normalized today, then just try to answer this question. What is sexual perversion today? Seriously, what is considered sexual immorality today? I mean, we're way past homosexual behavior. I've read spiritual leaders who are endorsing the legitimacy of polyamorous relationships or open relationships as long as everyone's in the know and nobody's being physically hurt. The parallels of Romans 1 with American culture today are extraordinary. I'm actually surprised that more theologians and Bible scholars aren't talking about it, honestly. We live in a society that's normalized perversion on every level. No sexual act is off limits as long as it's consensual, right? As long as it's consensual, it's moral. That's the mindset of the day. Our culture collectively denies natural law from the government on down. Every sector has embraced this way of thinking. It is the lens that drives Western society. It's one of pleasure and sensuality and hedonism. In recent years, there's even been a change in the collective posture toward pedophilia. There are advocacy groups that are pushing to change the terminology related to pedophiles. They say we need to refer to them as minor attracted persons or maps. That's how far gone we are. So where do we go from here? How are we as Christians going to live in a culture that is hostile toward general revelation of God? Do you see why adhering to the authority of Scripture and a biblical worldview why these things are so important. 
Do you see why properly interpreting Scripture is imperative in our walk with Jesus? Friends, if you only choose the parts of the Bible that you like and reject the parts that you don't, then you don't believe the Bible. Bottom line, you, you reject the authority of Scripture. Instead, what you're doing is you're leaning to your own understanding. You're trusting your own intuition and instinct more than you do God's revelation. Yet what we fail to realize is that our instincts have been largely shaped by a corrupt, depraved culture. It doesn't matter that how intellectually advanced we think we are. It doesn't matter that it's, oh, 2023. It doesn't matter what the experts say, and I use that word lightly because everybody's an expert these days. I mean, look at where all this human expertise has gotten us. Let's get back to the word. Come on, folks, let's get back to the word. Someone with a biblical worldview, they understand that any human wisdom or expertise that isn't grounded in God's revelation of himself is foolishness. We don't have the right to re-envision Scripture to accommodate prevailing worldviews on human sexuality, abortion, gender, marriage, or anything else. The perspective of our culture, just like Paul's on all these issues, stems from a society that's embraced the philosophies of Babylon, paganism, humanism, idol worship rules the day. Welcome to exile. So in that sense, how do we navigate it? How are you going to live in exile? Faithfully, I hope. Ultimately, what we're witnessing is a battle over the authority of Scripture. It's a clash between competing worldviews. It's the same struggle that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden. God didn't actually mean what he said, did he? You won't surely die if you partake of the forbidden fruit. Friends, this isn't an argument for or against science or technology or progress. This isn't about gender and sexuality. All these things are simply the grounds where the battle is being fought. What this is really about is whether or not God's word is reliable. So the challenge of navigating exile is going to be our willingness to be a people who live in all of God's goodness and grace. People who aren't tossed around by the vain philosophies and the empty ideas of the present age. People who are grounded in what God has revealed about himself through his word. Friends, the world certainly doesn't need a church that accommodates every passing social movement and cultural phenomenon. The world needs a church that's willing to risk everything to turn the world upside down the way the early church did. We need a church that's willing to proclaim without apology, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Thank you for tuning in today. Until next time, my name is Brian Powell, and this is A Time to Speak. Thank you.